Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. We'll be talking about whether it's okay to change the lyrics of hymns we don't like, what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote that the present form of the world is passing away, some resources for going deeper in our sermon series on Zechariah, and what to do if you feel like it's already getting too deep. We're going to start off by talking about music, specifically a song that we sang at Grace two weeks ago in our worship service, Augustus Toplady's famous hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Now, Cameron, before we discuss it, I want to play a clip of the fourth verse, the way we sang it in our worship service at Grace. Here it is. sang Rock of Ages as our communion song, and that was Cameron's choice to do. But I got an email from Cameron uh, after he had made that selection asking a question about that fourth verse, the wording of it, and whether or not we wanted to include it. So Cameron, why don't you just explain what your question was about the words? I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think when I soar to worlds unknown was was the trigger. Yes, and I, I really do hate to raise any critique of this song because it's so beautiful. And it's hardly a critique. But my, my question really was, do we, do we want to sing a verse about about that, about this idea of dying and essentially floating, it's uh, soaring, you know, this, this language of just ascending into kind of, I guess it's heaven, but the language is worlds unknown. And I raise the question because my understanding is that that's not the ultimate Christian hope. The ultimate Christian hope is something beyond heaven. It's the new creation. It's the new Jerusalem. And well, song, well, but let me stop you there because yeah. I, I feel like I've heard a thousand songs in church that, that definitely give the impression that the gospel is, if I trust Jesus uh, in this life, when I die, my soul leaves my body and I go live forever in heaven with God. Exactly. <laughs> and is there a problem? <laughs> well, I, I think so. Um, so Rock of Ages is just one example like you, you said, of, right. of lots of other hymns in particular, I think, that that tend to, it's the third or maybe the fourth verse, you know, the last verse, it's kind of this, well, I've, you know, I've lived my life and I'm dying and then I go to be with Jesus. And while that's true and, and biblical, I'm not questioning that. What I'm questioning is, you know, maybe we should add, maybe we should have one more verse that says, um, you know, and, and when God comes down and recreates the world, when um, when the true eschaton happens, 
you know, then Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in right. there forever. Right. When I find myself in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth, when I find myself being truly and fully human, then cleft for me. I wonder, you know, I, I wonder what top lady would say in response. You know, now, now my guess is if we confronted uh, the, your average hymnal or praise song writer, that uh, they'd be surprised at the challenge because of course your soul goes to live this disembodied eternal existence. Uh, what's, what's your point? But Augustus top lady was a little bit different because if you go and do a little bit of research, he was a uh, prominent uh, 18th century Calvinist. He was a, a bit of a polemicist. He was a, sparring partner of John Wesley, who was famously uh, anti-Calvinistic in his uh, viewpoint. And so Toplady was one of those authors who uh, really set him off and Toplady stuck to his guns. Um, I, I mean, at this point, I'm feeling like the, that intersection of dad humor and pastor humor where <laughs> I just start speculating about the competition to right. marry Augustus Top Lady. You know, which of the ladies would become Mrs. Top Lady? <laughs> but um, I think he would have sympathized, would have known that uh, there was something beyond, you know, what what we're talking about. There's so if if I were trying to find like a technical term for the the, the mistake that you're mm. putting your finger on, Cameron, it's. Um, it's people mistaking the eternal state and the intermediate state. So in theology, when we talk about what happens after you die and the spirit leaves the body and goes to be in the presence of the Lord, that's the intermediate state. That's what happens between your death and the resurrection of the body. And so, I mean, your point really is that there's a whole glorious chapter after that, right, and to kind of end with the thought of, um, you know, when I die, please, please be there with me as I soar to worlds unknown. Mm -hmm. it's, it's there's, there's a, we know a little bit more about what world yes. you should have in mind. Yeah. Well. Okay. And so you you recommended still that we sing the song. Why Why did you do that? Uh, that's a good question. So I think that when I look at the words and I think about what, what is the request, if we sing Rock of Ages cleft for me, we're asking for some space to be made, like a refuge to be made for us. That refuge has a sort of redemptive or salvific quality to it that, that maybe applies at the time of death and, and looking forward to the immediate state, intermediate state. But, when you contemplate, you know, what comes after judgment, I think the the need for that changes, right? Because we're now living in the presence of God, that face-to-face -face communion with him. And so the 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 cry isn't isn't a cry for for mercy and salvation because it's happens. It's it's now like a cry of glory, you know, and and worship. So I think if if we were to get Top Lady on the show and and kind of you know grill him <laughs> that 
that he could make an argument like that, that he says, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. So he has the soaring taking place prior to that judgment, not after. And uh, that restoration of all things comes after that. And so I think that that let me feel fine Mm -hmm. about having this song. But it does raise an interesting question, which is what do we do when we have songs that are, you know, familiar, popular, beloved songs, and they do have lyrics that, that um, just aren't accurate. So, I mean, how do you feel Cameron about uh, people going in and changing the lyrics that somebody else wrote? I mean, that feels a little bit like a violation. Yeah. Right. It's, it's tough. And I suppose I would want it, I would want it to be a case by case basis. So you, you take a song and, one thing you mentioned was that it would be strange to sing Rock of Ages without that verse right. because we're so familiar with that with that verse. Many of us are. And I think the same case could be made for other songs that if you, you changed it significantly or you omitted a verse like that, people would just be confused and, and right. maybe the worship experience would would be somehow diminished. That said, I, I can certainly imagine there being songs, parts of songs, um, where we just can't find a theological warrant to sing it, and, right? And I guess I don't, I don't know if I would bother changing that. Maybe just don't sing the song. I, it's it's tough to say. I can't think of of an example right now. I know um, was it you know certain denominations were not comfortable with. I think it was in Christ alone, right? You know the mention of the wrath of God mm-hmm. in that hymn. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, so you know, I think we both come at it with with kind of a uh wearing multiple hats, you know, as as writers and in your case a singer-songwriter as well. I mean, you can imagine someone taking a song you had written and deciding to improve the the wording in this way or <laughs> you know, correct your theology. And there would be something, you know, slightly annoying about that. And, and I personally in singing songs that I know have been um, adjusted or adapted in that way, I hate it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it always irritates me. Uh, oftentimes well-meaning people will adapt the language that they think is archaic so that modern people can understand better that sort of thing. And I'm not a fan of, of those accommodations. So I definitely would not like, you know, to go in with my razor and, and edit the, the text. I do think not singing the song, not choosing the Mm -hmm. song is, is, is a good one. And that's sort of my, it's the reason why we just don't do the whole genre of sentimental Victorian, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of Mm -hmm. Fanny Crosby esque sort of songs uh, because they are a lot more heat than light. Um, I could see not doing certain verses of a song, mm-hmm. you know, depending on the circumstances. But um, I, I, I'm one of those people that I, I love the theological richness of old hymns, mm-hmm. but I'm not that committed to the music I don't mind the idea of the music being updated and that sort of thing to make those words accessible again. Yeah, right. So if you want to tamper with the music, 
that's okay. Mm-hmm. I, the text, I'd much rather, you know, have a hands-off approach to. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as a, as a guitarist, as I, you know, I tamper with the music just about every sure. Sunday, sure. So. <laughs> but we try to keep the words the yeah. same. Yeah. And I think those artistic interpretive choices, that sort of thing, you know, obviously music at grace, um, I think it's important to be self-consciously focused on like the scale of the music being appropriate to our space and, and like the feel of it kind of going with, with the feel of Grace's worship and that sort of thing. There's always adaptations like that. Um, I, I just think specifically on that, that question of lyrics, um, it's always harder, you know, I'm, I'm, it's why it's so interesting to talk about, you know, and I think people may not realize in a church service how much uh, thought and in some cases discussion, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing has gone into those selections. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is just a good example of, of one of those behind the scenes things where uh, there are interesting theological points at stake and we do want to make sure that the, the a biblical understanding of, of salvation is reflected in the words that we sing. Absolutely. So the scripture passage from last Sunday's service came from 1 Corinthians 7. And as I read it on Sunday, I had a kind of a question about it. So we're going to read it here. This is verses 29 through 31. And then we'll have a a little discussion about it. Paul says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So my question had to do with that last sentence there. The present form of this world is passing away. Obviously, we don't have the whole context of 1 Corinthians here before us, but I was kind of wondering, what, what do we think Paul meant by that? What does he mean that the present form of the world is passing away, first off, and why does it have all those kind of strange implications? It's a really good question because, you know, as you know, different people will interpret Paul's words here in different ways. And so one of the the common ways of looking at this is Paul mistakenly believed that the return of Christ was imminent and was saying, uh, you know, Jesus is going to return shortly, because it's going to happen at any moment, all of these concerns of everyday life that you've been devoting yourself to, you should drop that. Uh, It's not important. And you should, you know, focus on the end of the world, Mm. basically. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple of problems with that. Like, I'm always reluctant to to think that uh, the Apostle Paul, you know, didn't know what he was talking about or got it wrong or, or whatever. But, but it's also hard to square that interpretation with 
other passages where Paul is giving instruction on how to live in this life, you know, as if he thought it was going to take place. You know, how, how, how do you connect, for example, the apostle who says, let those who have wives live as though they had none with the same one who in Ephesians five is giving instructions for husbands and wives and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Like, why doesn't he just say, you know, husbands, wives, never mind. It's not important, you know? (laughs) So I think that's not what he's getting at. So then the question is, you know, what is he pointing to? And I think this is harder for us to see the farther away from that period we get, because when we think of the end times, um, eschatological time for us, we anticipate it being in the future. You know, some people think any day now, mm-hmm. uh, some people think, you know, the end of the age, it could be, you know, in our lifetimes or, you know, maybe it won't be for hundreds of years. Uh, in the new Testament, they're really seeing that end of the age and dawning of a new age is a thing that is in the course of taking place. And so, you know, in, in, the book of Revelation, for example. I mean, John is looking back retrospectively, and and I believe Peter as well has the sense that that the days we're living in are the end times, that that a new age has dawned. And so they see the coming of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises as the the that culmination of history. Mm-hmm. And the period that we live in now, where the kingdom is, you know, already but not yet, has the quality for them of of eschatological time, you know. And and I think, you know, we're being told here that it should have the quality of eschatological time for us as well, mm. you know, that that we should not be invested in in like our hopes are not focused on this world which is in the course of passing away yeah in its present form yeah I, I suppose it's you know you use that phrase already but not yet um there's that tension there and i suppose that tension explains how we are to live uh, we are to live as if the kingdom of god is already here or as if this age has passed away and yet we're stuck here you know so to speak we here we are living even though the kingdom hasn't been fully realized yet so and i think that would maybe be the paul that's saying hey husbands love your wives and you know live a quiet life right right kind of a thing and so i think the 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 two things being held in tension in a passage like this are the uh live your life in a Christ-like way that we might think of as, as kind of a, a call to everyday Christian living, but held in tension with a live with a sense of urgency, live with a sense of the, the reality of the return of Christ. And both of those things have to be like held together, you know, that you can't, you can't take the teachings of scripture about how to live and, and you know, what's a wise course of life and focus on that as if you have all the time in the world that, you know, living the best life now is the goal of your, your faith. You have to have that sense of the immediacy of 
the, the coming kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, those two things pour through here. And so it's not, you know, it's not that Paul wants you to start neglecting your wife. He doesn't want you to, to, you know, misbehave at funerals where people are mourning (laughs) or stop rejoicing, you know, those kinds of like wooden readings of this, I think are, are missing the, 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 the eschatological import of his words. So Cameron, as you know, we are currently in a sermon series at Grace where we're working through the book of Zechariah. Uh, We're still early days, and so what we're doing now is working through the night visions of Zechariah that run from Zechariah 1 to Zechariah 6. And according to some scholars, there are eight visions, and that's the number that I've been going with in our sermon series. Others would argue there are seven, and they kind of combine them differently and sort of lump some together, that sort of thing. But it's, uh, it, it, it's been in my mind that it'd be really helpful for people as we're working through this to have some additional resources so that uh, what's not covered in sermons, you can go dig deeper in other things. And so um, some of the things I, I've recommended are kind of basic. So the Bible Project summary videos, um, they've got summary videos on YouTube that cover all of the books of the Bible. And I think they're a great starting point. Like anytime you're studying a book of the Bible and you want to get like an outline of its structure and kind of understand how the parts fit together and that sort of thing. I I think these summaries, they're, they're usually pretty succinct. I think the one we did on Haggai, I think it's about five minutes and then Zechariah is about eight minutes and fantastic, fantastic stuff. So to begin with, I would just recommend to everyone that they take a look at those and, and, and maybe you want to watch them more than once, <laughs> you know, to get those set in your mind. And so I've also recommended some commentaries. Um, Calvin's commentary on Zechariah is free online at, uh, at biblehub.com among other places, and I always benefit from Calvin's exegetical insights and his application. Uh, I know, Cameron, you actually had a, I guess, what we might call a come-to-Jesus moment reading (laughs) Calvin's Institutes in grad school, right? Yes, yes, it was a come-to-Calvin moment, I suppose, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so that was my last semester at, at Princeton Seminary, and Oddly enough, they were still offering courses on on Calvin, and we essentially spent the whole semester. It was a it was a PhD level class. I was just a, a master student, but I snuck in and we read through the institutes, uh, not all of it, but we read mm-hmm. um, quite a bit of it, and just kind of realized, whoa, this is this is kind of what I think. You know, this is right. what I believe, right. and this is what I believe to be true. Um, you know, not everything. I'm not saying everything Calvin mm-hmm. ever wrote was was gold but um he sure has a way of articulating and yeah since then i've actually obtained his his whole set of commentaries as mm-hmm. well and every now and then if i'm just reading scripture and i come across a puzzle I'll yeah one open 
Yeah, I like to think that where Calvin gets it wrong, it's it's probably a translation error, right? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, I mean, you'll you'll find obviously in the Reformed tradition there are plenty of people who will you know correct Calvin's you know use of the languages or something like that. But but it's shocking how how good the insights are, and uh, I I always tell people that uh, if you like Tim Keller, when you read Calvin's Institutes, you start coming across all of these ideas and you're like, wait a second, he got this from Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, that's not what happened. It's the other way around. <laughs> yeah. You know, Tim Keller has kind of taken these insights from Calvin and, and you know, reframed them in 21st century language. And, and I think it's one of the things that, that gives uh, his ideas such power. So, so definitely if you're interested in, in going deeper into Zechariah, Take a look at Calvin's commentaries. Uh, the translations are always a little Victorian, a little stilted, but uh, if you you just endure that till you get used to the rhythm of it, there's there's just amazing stuff to be gleaned. So I did recommend another kind of. It's an interesting take on. I, I don't know if commentary is the right word, but it's a book about Zechariah by Brian Gregory called Longing for God in an Age of Discouragement, the Gospel According to Zechariah. And I would say this is a really good accessible guide to Zechariah. So if you want maybe a, a place to start, this would be a really good place to start, and it would give you uh, just a great grounding in the structure and, and the the significance of the vision. So that's that's kind of the the basic high level stuff and i want to recommend another resource that i found helpful but i have to preface it by saying that so one of the things we've been really careful to do in interpreting these apocalyptic visions is not to go down the uh let's say like the the rabbit trail that people often do with the book of revelation where you start doing a lot of speculation about the meaning of of the symbols and drift farther and farther from like the interpretation of those things that's actually given to us in the text. So we've tried to stay focused and we're trying to stay focused on that. And I've said, you know, there's a lot of speculation out there, a lot of bad speculation. But then I added, there's also some good speculation. So the book I want to recommend is in the latter category. So this is Meredith Klein's book, Glory in Our Midst. It's a biblical theological reading of Zechariah's night visions. Now, Klein takes exactly the opposite approach to what I've been doing and trying to kind of stay, you know, stay with the certainties and not not delve too much into the mysteries. Klein does, you know, what I think is sort of a, like in the tradition of, like biblical theology, Gerhardus Voss's work, that kind of thing. Like he's really digging deep, but but it's not just wild speculation. It's finding connections mm-hmm. in other passages of Scripture where where symbols recur, where uh, images or items, you know, types of trees, you know, that sort of thing are found in multiple places, and then drawing, you know, conclusions from that. So. This is a book that I've been dipping into, and and I think like I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend Glory in Our Midst as sort of a a light read if you're just kind of looking to breeze through something to give you a little insight. But if during the course of 
studying Zechariah, you really get into these visions and really want to understand, um, let's say, the, the deeper possibilities, like what, might, what they might be pointing to. I think Klein does a really good job of illuminating that. He also has, I think, probably the, the most sort of complicated sense of the structure of the book that I've come across as well. And so, I, it, you know, for, for what it's worth, wanted to take it deeper. I think Meredith Klein's Glory in Our Midst is, is a, a great resource to take a look at. Well, thanks for providing those resources, Pastor Mark. I certainly am excited for this this series. I'm gonna I'm gonna dive deeper. I think I'll start with Calvin. However, I know that there are probably some other people who who don't necessarily want to go deeper at this point, and they feel like they're they're in too deep, or they're you know this Zechariah stuff, this minor prophets visions in the night stuff. This is this is complex, and I could see the question coming up how. Rather than trying to go deep, how do I apply Zechariah to my own life? As you know, every Sunday, hear this sermon, not always easy to, to grasp what Zechariah is trying to teach to us in these, these Old Testament visions. How, how do I make sure that this really is uh, you know, sinking in and affecting the way that I live my life as a Christian? Yeah, that's a great question because I think, especially with this material, I mean, it starts off deep. And the challenge is sort of, you know, illuminating those mysteries, but also making them accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, at Grace, we talk about being people who are longing for more grace, more depth and more community. But the reality is, you know, while that's all true of us collectively, you know, individuals have different longings. Right. And, and so, you know, some are longing for more grace and, and they're good on depth, you know, or <laughs> longing for more community. But, but you know, grace, depth, they get it, you know. So you always have to think about that, that balance, mm-hmm. I think. And so, you know, in thinking about how these visions ought to, like, shape us, like, it, like what's the direction that it gives us, I think one of the big takeaways that I'm seeing so far, you know, kind of in the early days of this study is that, we're seeing a lot of things in the Old Testament that connect really tightly with the New Testament, right? That, that make it really clear that Jesus, who is proclaimed Messiah in the New Testament, is the one who is being promised in the Old Testament, right? right? And what that means is, like, like, what the people are waiting for it is coming. It's it's something they can put their hope in, even though right now they live in a ruin and right now things seem hopeless, right? And I think that's something we need to know for ourselves. Like first and foremost, we live lives that are a lot like you know, Jerusalem. Yeah. Zechariah's day, you know, a lot of what we care about has been torn down, has been plundered. Um, a lot of like our dreams, honestly, like how we thought our lives would turn out, you know, what we thought we were going to accomplish, things like that. Uh, it hasn't worked out that way. And it's easy to conclude from that, that 
like the hope that that we had isn't really going to materialize mm-hmm. you know there's there's a a point later on in the visions where Zerubbabel who's the governor is is referred to as as holding a plumb line and we're told people are going to look back on this this time like in retrospect and see sort of that he held this line that that kind of connects the days they're living in to the days of Christ the days of of Jesus as the cornerstone and i think that's what i would like people to understand now like at this point that, that there's a line that connects where you're at right now to the return of Christ to glory to to the kingdom that is coming as as modest you know as as much as this seems like a day of small things in Zechariah's words there's a straight line to glory and knowing that remembering that like it it should change the way you see your life because i mean it had to have changed how they saw jerusalem right mm-hmm. you know they they were looking at that ruin differently after these visions yeah yeah i think that's that's really helpful it it's it almost makes me think of like uh, part of it's seeing our story as Christians in the story of the Old Testament too. Of, so trying not to get lost in the visions, but seeing the whole context of the visions and, and keeping that in mind, what's going on with the, the people of Jerusalem and the, the story of redemption. That's helped me to remember, oh yeah, they're, they're coming back, you know, from exile. They're rebuilding something. And I've personally been connecting that story to exactly what's been going on post pandemic um, you know, we're not quite through it, but we're, it feels as if as a church, at least, and, and I see this other churches, they're, they're starting to consider what, what's, what's it going to look like when the, the virus right. is gone. And, um, and you hinted at this, I think, or maybe you were more explicit in your very first, your introduction sermon um, to the series that is this the new Jerusalem? It was the question you're asking. Is this right. it? And so I just had myself asking that. Is I think a lot of Christians are asking that now. Is this, you know, church? Is this church? Is, is this really, you know, what it's all about? And um, it, the plastic-like communion that we're eating and <laughs> and so forth. So anyway, it's it's, yeah, it's seeing how kind of what Israel was experiencing in that moment and, and the greater story. Um, it's really similar. Thank you, Cameron, and thank you to everyone who's listening to us. That's all the time we have this week for the commentary. Hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, you can find out more about Grace Presbyterian Church by visiting us online at graceforsufalls.org.